Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Hey friends, welcome to this special Christmas 2021 edition of Grant Writing Simplified. If you are ready to unleash your skills on the world to make a massive impact, then let's get you on the fast track. The Fast Track to Grant Writer is my VIP small group coaching experience where you'll learn how to be the go-to grant writer in your community. This is everything the books don't tell you. It's like miracle grow for grant writers. Let's fast track your income and your impact. Join me today at TeresaHuff.com slash VIP. It's been a while since we've had a nonprofit spotlight on the show. I've been saving this interview up for you to air during the holidays. And let me tell you, there is gold in here today. I can't wait for you to hear it. Last week, we talked about how success leaves clues and the importance of always learning, but also taking action. Today's guest is a perfect example of that combination. Courtney Vrablick is the executive director of The Store in Nashville, Tennessee. You need to know a little background first about The Store. A few years ago, Brad Paisley and his wife, Kimberly Williams Paisley, and yes, that's referring to the country singer and the actress, they took their kids to volunteer at the Unity Shop in Santa Barbara, California. This was a similar type of nonprofit grocery store, and that visit sparked a dream in them to address food insecurity in their own hometown community of Nashville, Tennessee. The store provides free groceries to families and people who are seeking self-sufficiency and the opportunity to break cycles of poverty. And today's guest, Courtney, is the executive director of the store. And as a single mom who has navigated through a lot of assistance programs in the past, Courtney really has a heart for serving her community. She has such compassion and drive and helps people in a way that makes them feel seen and respected. I really appreciate Courtney's combination of tenacity and confidence and humility. She's just this beautiful, inspiring person. You will really enjoy this insightful conversation. I made a list of so many great takeaways myself, (laughs) so I know this is a little bit longer than our typical episodes, but I promise you it will be worth it. So stick with me to the end. Here we go. Learning to make that transition from, in the corporate world, you're expected to be able to make decisions and lead through it and jump in, especially between uh, working in the food industry as a chef. You know, rapid fire decisions are just part of the everyday business. And then working for Amazon, you know, they expect you, like that's one of the main statements and policies of leadership that they expect from you is that ability to analyze the situation, make a rapid decision, and then lead people through it. 
And then when I transitioned into the nonprofit world, I mean, it's a whole other animal. And so there's the committees and the approvals and the formalities and procedural things. I studied books <laughs> once I took the job of like, you would have to, it's an entirely other oh creature. It really is. And, you know, in some ways it was frustrating because I had to slow down. On the other hand, it really taught me to be able to present a well thought out argument or decision and policy what it was that I was doing, be able to walk people through it, explain it from the ground up and just be very clear in that, that level of communication. So you learn to rely on your board's wisdom and experience for the pitfalls that you, you maybe would have never seen. Yeah, that's a big key is being able to trust the people around you too, to fill in those gaps, especially where you're transitioning. And that's where so many people don't realize how many of the core skills really transfer back and mm-hmm. forth from corporate to nonprofit, mm-hmm. yet <laughs> nonprofit is kind of its own different beast. It's like being in a different country. It really is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're learning a whole new language. I've been very fortunate too in being able to network. I'm really surprised that especially new leaders who are women who came into the nonprofit world roughly around the same time that I did. And being able to join in conversations and have cohorts and coffee groups with them and being able to like play this over like, hey, is this is this normal? (laughs) Am I wrong? Can you help me like refine my judgment on this? Is this the procedure? Does your board, you know, X, Y, Z. And just being able to bounce that off of peers who were coming in from corporate into the nonprofit uh, leadership arena at the same time. It was really I probably know maybe eight to 10 women that all jumped in at the same time. It's really, it's fascinating. It's really, it's been so amazing too. That's interesting. And you're in a large enough community where you have probably some pretty good resources like that and support and groups that you can kind of be a part of to help pull from. Well, and, you know, also just um, taking the suggestion of, I have a peer who's at another nonprofit And she had an opportunity to do a cohort. It was a ladies leadership group that Joe Saxton was holding for women in nonprofit leadership. And this peer of mine, we had only had one or two conversations and she rang me up and was like, listen, I know we don't know each other very well, but this is a really awesome opportunity. I've read this woman's books. I really think that we would all benefit from it. I'd love to have you there and invited me into this group. And it was like six other women. And we did a six-week course together where we met every other week, and it was life-changing. It was just fascinating. So it's the things that we do, you know, to build each other up and offer each other opportunities that that maybe wouldn't have been presented to us in, in the regular course of action and business. So that's awesome. And the things you can relate to mm-hmm. or springboard from just sharing mm-hmm. ideas, even if you have different types of nonprofits, different types of people you're serving, still those processes are super helpful. Absolutely. And, you know, we all bring different skills and experience to the table. So to be able to talk to another leader who happens to be very good at data collection, or happens to be very good at including a narrative in all of their social medias, or has a really consistent concept of messaging. And to be able to play these things back and forth and bounce them off of each other, it's true. You don't have to be in the same areas and fields of nonprofit service and programming, but just the procedures, the behind the scenes, the everyday business. 
and, and being able to provide a quality face and front to your organization and be able to play that off of other people and their experience dropping that huge. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and I love this look behind the scenes because I know you guys are fairly new. You had just started this right before the pandemic. Four days. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah, who knew? <laughs> but this freight train was coming at you right around the corner. <laughs> and so to be able to get this off the ground and it looks like you have managed to encompass so many community partners and support and volunteers and like even just farmers markets and local grocers and all kinds of people. It's just amazing to me, like the support you've generated for it to where that's where I was like, okay, I need to pull back the curtain and talk to you to see how have you done this so quickly and just, you know, been able to pull it off and get it up and running like that. Well, you know, part of the store's overall mission and programming was never to just be food. I mean, that's what our location does. That's what our programming is. But we drew our customer base from referral agencies that are nonprofits that are or organizations that are functioning here in the Nashville area already. So we had built up that connection, um, our program director had established those relationships. And so that was like who was funneling in the customers to us. But it also provided the opportunity for us to then turn to them and say, okay, COVID's happening. Are there additional resources that we can bring in or that we can turn our customers back and say, listen, here are some other additional services. I think, you know, as much as I would like to say, oh yeah, me and my team, we we pulled this all together really quickly. We were a brand new organization. We were open for four whole days and we were testing out a model that had never existed before, especially in this area. So it wasn't just all of us sheer force of will pushing through this storm. It was the way, especially in Nashville, I will say, having lived all over the country, this is a particular mindset within the Nashville community where it still believes that it is a small town and it still pulls together in times of of difficulty and people show up. And this is unusual. I, I can't stress this enough. So having, we were coming through that energy from the tornadoes and the community pulling together for that. And so we were all kind of already in that hypervigilant mode of people need help and and how do we pull together and how do we pool our resources? And then, you know, we get into the pandemic end of things. And really what it caused leaders in the nonprofit area to do is instead of being tied to your bubble of service, we began to network openly with each other and say, listen, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. What do you have? I have additional resources here that I don't want to go to waste. Can you use them? It just, it helped us come together as a cohesive community resource in general. I don't want to say that we were trading things necessarily, but what I mean is like there were services that weren't maybe being provided for certain populations that weren't already established programming. And we were able to kind of, okay, we recognize that there's a need over here. Here's what I can do. Can you provide this amount of this? And then communicating that to the volunteers that were coming to us, especially through Hands-On Nashville. It came together really quickly because everybody came to it with an open heart and an open mind, and we weren't being self-protective. We were all focused on the same goal of addressing the need. 
kind of a cross coordination of services yes. and filling gaps. Yes. Yes. It was, I mean, really, it's one of the most amazing and um, I'm so grateful for it. I really am because there were, you know, leaders who have been in their organizations for two and three decades that were like, okay, listen, don't panic. We got this. Then there were some of us that were, you know, still wet behind the ears who were like, bringing the energy and we've got the, we've got the enthusiasm and we're going to jump in wherever we can. And, you know, you just, you build off of each other's strengths. That's really cool. And, you know, none of us would want to go through the pandemic again, obviously, but I think these things you're describing, those are really some of the silver linings and some of the blessings that we're starting to see come out of it as a result, because now Mm -hmm. that you've done that and built those relationships and network, could you see yourself going back to that bubble again? I mean, look where you are now and the coordination that's happening as a result of that. Right. And, and yeah, it definitely was the silver lining for the whole thing. And, you know, it's that whole, like when you serve in the trenches with someone else kind of mindset, once you've gone through a hardship with a group, you have a, you have a bond and a relationship and trust. And I think that, again, it helped us all kind of look up from the table we were sitting at across the horizon and be able to see the bigger picture and, and kind of, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but it was very, um, it was a gift to have a shift in perspective. I'm sure it was probably in a lot of ways that you may still mm-hmm. have yet to see. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it's, it's really made the, the Nashville community, especially just stronger. And, you know, I think that's probably what has drawn so many people to that area. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the small town mindset, small town feel and kind of that community, even though people it's grown <laughs> hugely. But I think that's probably one of the draws is it hasn't lost that sense of family and hospitality. I mean, coming from, you know, I'm, I'm a Yankee, I'm from Pennsylvania. And so you hear about the stereotypical, like, oh, Southern hospitality. No, it's real. It's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So with all of this, I mean, you obviously came into this with a huge skill set. And you're probably like a lot of people I talk to, myself included, in nonprofit work. Like we didn't train for nonprofit work. We all just kind of eased into it in the back door. And it sounds like you came into it the same way. Mm -hmm. So what was that like for you? Were you like battling this? I know I can do this. Yet on the other side, who am I to even think I could do this? Oh, imposter syndrome is a very, yeah, that's a very real thing that comes And also, you know, in stepping into this arena, you come to realize that there's actually two different groups that are functioning in the whole nonprofit world, where there there are the people like us who have come in with prior experience in various fields. We're not trained for nonprofit work. We're learning as we go and we're bringing those skills with us. And then there's this new group that has started to develop and acquire the academic training that goes into the nonprofit world. And, you know, as much as people want to say, oh, it's this way or that way, I think an organization benefits from both. And so I'm always thrilled to be able to learn from somebody who, you know, maybe has a degree that involves development and fundraising. Those are fascinating to me. And maybe I'm a little bit jealous that they have that additional training because that brings with the confidence of saying, you know, I've studied this. I know what the information is. So jumping into it from corporate background and learning as I go, it's really when you have to rely a lot on your board to point out the areas where you need to grow 
um, and be open-minded about what it is that you, you don't know, but also learning to just trust your gut on the idea that, no, that I have some information on this. I have some experience with this and I can bring that perspective in. I'll be honest, when I came into this particular organization, I, this is not the job that I applied for. I applied for the ops manager position because I have a background in food and retail and then management. And so when I was looking at the job description that was posted, I was like, oh, I could, I, I know these things. And so I felt very confident going into an interview and talking about, you know, my level of experience and growing up in a, in a family business that was retail oriented and then being a pastry chef and, you know, going through all that whole end of things. Um, and when they started asking me a little bit more personal questions of what was driving me to leave a really good corporate job and apply for this position. It was my backstory, my personal story of experiencing food insecurity that kind of, you know, that was what was motivating me. I didn't really think that was going to be like an important aspect necessarily to them. And about two hours after I'd had my initial interview, a couple of the board members called me up and asked me to consider the executive director position instead of the operations manager position. So I quickly had to adjust my mindset. And I mean, I was blown away by that. That was, I was really grateful that they were able to have the foresight and the vision of seeing what it was that they were hoping for with the organization and the direction that we were going in. But yeah, uh, I spent probably two weeks being like, they've made a terrible mistake. I don't have any experience in this, like how, how, you know, and that's when I started like acquiring books and calling friends and Hey, what I need a crash course in everything nonprofit now. <laughs> right. I got to figure this out like tonight. <laughs> make it till you make it energy gets real, real. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Oh, I can't imagine. I'm sure you've had days where you were pretty overwhelmed, but then probably in that stage, it was pretty rewarding quickly too, just to see like, okay, this team effort, things are coming mm-hmm. together fast. Everybody mm-hmm. is chipping in and a part of this. Yeah. When you start seeing results and you start seeing people coming together, you know, you have an idea in your head of, of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and you hope that your intent in what it is that you're trying to accomplish follows through with the same amount of impact. And it's when you start seeing the results and the and people are are giving you feedback and you're able to gauge that impact that you really know whether or not you need to change course, if you're doing it right, if your if your gut was right. I don't think that women get encouraged enough to trust their guts, but it's a really valuable and important asset that we bring to the table, especially for, and you know, I, I don't want to discount women who don't have children, but if you have been a mom and have managed a household, those women do not get enough credit for the amount of unpaid labor and managerial experience that they bring to the table. And I, I don't think that that should ever be downplayed. That's valuable to any organization that they are a part of. That's very true. And, you know, it took me a long time to learn to trust my mm-hmm. gut. And even though like looking back, I could see times when I was like, Ooh, I was spot on there or I should have listened to myself. Mm-hmm. And so after a while it was like, you know, I need to just listen. And my husband now it's just like, what does your gut yep. say? And he totally, it's like, he realizes it's a thing and I don't know how to explain it, but sometimes you just know, like there's certain things. I think our brains just kind of pull together clues without us even realizing it. 
Yes, very much so. I completely agree with that. So with celebrities involved, was that a little intimidating for you or were you okay with that? Um, So first of all, when I applied, I had no idea that the people who were involved were involved. I didn't know who the founders were. I just liked the concept. That was critical to me, the, the way that programming was being displayed as wraparound services, getting to breaking cycles of poverty and stuff. And so when I looked at that, oh, you know, I want to be a part of that. Then I go into the meeting and I find out that we have two famous founders and they happen to be really fabulous people. What I've discovered is that there's two different mindsets of what happens when you have celebrity involvement. There are people who assume that the celebrities are doing this because it's a tax write-off. No, it's not. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. not what's happening. Yeah. Maybe there are people who do that because they want the feedback or the image that they're giving back, whether or not that's their heart. I don't know. I can't speak for those people. That's not why Brad and Kim Paisley are doing what it is that they're doing. And then there's the mindset that if a celebrity starts a nonprofit, they're there every day, they're unloading the trucks, they're answering the phones, they're opening the mail, they're paying the bills. Like, no, that's also not possible because in order for them to maintain their celebrity status, they have careers and they have projects and they're on tour and there's things that they need to do. So it's a balance. And so getting to see them in action before the organization was able to open the doors and their level of involvement and getting to just sit down, like literally sit down at a kitchen table and have conversations with them about what was driving their hearts and motivations in this. And then, you know, their vision for the future and being able to explain where I was coming from. When you are dealing with people who genuinely care about the issue that they are trying to get involved in, that is all of the difference. And it peels back some of the additional whatever isms that come with like, Lord, I would never want to be a celebrity, man. That's just like, that's intense. (laughs) People watching all the time, engaging everything that you're saying. I am so grateful that at the end of the day, these are two people who genuinely care about the community, genuinely have a history of reaching out and helping people, whether anybody saw them do it or not. That's who they are at the end of the day. They're people. And then for them to be able to extend this amount of energy to be the face of the organization and be the voice of the organization, you know, whenever that's appropriate and it benefits us. Like, I'm grateful for that too, because that allows me to sit down at the office and get get the other work done. (laughs) Right. And, you know, as a leader in a nonprofit, that is a tough balance between those two things of being the face, but yet the reality is there's a lot of work to do. (laughs) So trying to balance those two things out is hard. Absolutely. And especially when you're talking about new nonprofits, there's only, you know, so much staffing that you're able to provide. So there's four of us that are full-time staffers. And then we rely on a great deal of volunteer energy and workforce and labor to help us get the day-to-day stuff done. So in terms of like what it is that I'm doing as the executive director, that's a title, but I'm also like head of development and all of the fundraising that goes into it. We only just brought on a grant writer to help. So I was, <laughs> uh, it's insane looking back now at all of the things that I had taken on without any kind of like training and just hoping it worked. The first year of writing grants myself and just, you know, hoping this was the right way to go about it and that I was achieving the requirements that were expected. And, you know, 
we're really fortunate that we we deal with a fair amount of foundations and grant makers that were willing to work with us, explain things to me. I've had, I think one of the kindest things that ever happened was there was a chair for a foundation here in the area who sat down and just explained to me, here's what other foundations are going to be looking for. Here's the numbers that you need to have ready. Here's how you present that information. Here's how you break down the percentages for your programming costs. He was so gracious and he did not have to do that at all. He just was very kind to me in that. Uh, And I will never forget that. And I am deeply grateful for it because until somebody walked through it, you're just kind of, you're driving through a fog, hoping that you don't get the proverbial deer. (laughs) It's a steep learning curve, especially when you're new to all of it, let alone the grant piece of it. (laughs) That's a lot by itself. Yes. Yeah. Because there's a whole workplace culture to it. And really, that's pretty early. Yes. But yeah, I'm sure having the need and then last year grants were a little different. Like yes. funding was different and people understood the need for emergency funding. So that was probably a good time to be involved mm-hmm. because normally being so new, the organization wouldn't have qualified yet. But right. you could probably build those relationships quickly to solidify that, which I'm sure helped springboard. Yeah, much in the same way that programming adjusted and was more fluid and welcoming and accepting on the street level of things, then your grant providers, your foundations, those that who were giving the money additionally, then kind of opened up on on this level of being very gracious and understanding. So we were not only new, but we had completely changed all of our programming outside of the fact that we were providing food. (laughs) Right. So the model that we had presented to these organizations who had supported us in opening the doors, then I had to go back and say, so listen, we really appreciate the funding, but this is what we had to do with it instead. You know, we were, I kind of feel like we were lucky in the fact that we didn't have a whole lot of time beforehand in the original model. So that when we changed it, we weren't stepping on a lot of toes. We weren't confusing the public. We didn't have to ask permission or forgiveness, really. So um, to be able to turn on a dime and say, listen, we need to address what's happening in the environment around us. And then we'll get back to what it was that we were were trying to do. Yeah. So many organizations were like, listen, we understand this is completely unusual. We understand that you're going to need more to bring on part-time staffing. You're going to need more food. You're going to need money to do that. And they really just jumped into overdrive. But yes, then to go back this year, a year later, and sit down with those organizations and do reporting back, there's still very much a sense of understanding of like, listen, we all had to just do the best you can. And nothing went as planned last year. Right. So how do we cut through all of the red tape and the, you know, the fat and say, okay, you need the money. We've got the money. You're doing the servicing. Let's beat up at the end and see if that was the right thing to do and how we can move forward together. And I really think that that was a a critical and helpful relationship. Instead of people holding to the letter of the law, we jumped into the spirit of the law. Yes. And I hope that's something that we saw that shift last year. Mm -hmm. It was a huge shift in the grant world. Mm -hmm. And I hope funders will still stay that direction in realizing we can trust nonprofits to handle the funding and to not have to jump through so many hoops. And I mean, I keep preaching that, but it's like, please listen and learn from this and 
don't make it so hard and cumbersome for everybody. Yes. On both sides of the process. Yes. So I hope we see that shift. I think back to a webinar I sat in on that was local leaders and forgive me. I wish that I could remember this woman's name. She was fantastic. She is a director for a local nonprofit. She is a woman of color. And one of the points that she brought up was how invaluable it has been for their organization because organizations that are led by people of color tend to receive less funding. Like just, that's just a fact. So then to be able to get money from foundations that say, listen, we're going to take our hands off of how it is that you feel you need to spend this. We're not going to limit it to just programming because maybe what you need is more staff in order to do some other facet of it. We're going to take the regulations off. We're going to trust that you know best how it is that you are addressing a problem in your community and what kind of leadership you need to bring in for that and how you need to pay them appropriately. Paying people appropriately is such a major conversation that I can't, yeah, I can't preach enough. I will, I will try to keep that soapbox where it is, but. (laughs) Oh yeah. We could pull that out for a whole episode on that. (laughs) Bring me back for that. I have thoughts. Um, But you know, what she said was that was the biggest gift in allowing that nonprofit to not only survive the pandemic conditions, but to actually thrive in their community and provide better servicing that address the actual needs. Yes. I hope funders are listening because they need to hear this from <laughs> leaders out there in the trenches too, not just from me. Yes. <laughs> but yes, I see that too. Mm-hmm. And they need the operating support. They need to stay open to mm-hmm. be able to grow the programs and to expand and meet the needs. And without it, they can't. They just yes. don't have the capacity and good people are burning out because of it. Yes. 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 We need to get past this mindset that nonprofit work is a ministry opportunity that we should all be doing for free. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. I totally agree. And I don't know. I don't know unless it's just a matter of we keep talking about it and we keep putting it Mm -hmm. out there and we keep Mm -hmm. shifting that mindset Mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. Ask people to invest themselves into any community whether it's nonprofit work, it's teaching, it's healthcare, anytime that you have to deal directly with other human beings and address their needs and provide a solution for them, people need to be compensated for the amount of emotional energy that goes into that. I think that's a big key too, is people on the outside don't understand the amount of mental and emotional toll Mm -hmm. that it takes Mm -hmm. to pour into them. Yes. And do you mind sharing a little more about your story and kind of what led you to this? And if not, that's totally. No, no, no. I'm an open book. My mother would tell you I'm probably a book that should close sometimes, but I am an open book. (laughs) There's, There's nothing to hide here. So I guess to ramp up to it, I ended up in Tennessee because, uh, I was a newlywed and my husband at the time wanted to attend school at middle Tennessee state. And so we moved down here literally on our first anniversary and we were married very young. So I'll just caveat with that. So in that time, then I joined up with Aramark, who was providing services on campus for food and dining and became the executive pastry chef over at Middle Tennessee State. And I was in that position for about five years. 
And at that time, then my husband decided to pursue his legal degree and, and go to law school. And so we moved back up to Pittsburgh because that's where our family is. And so I transferred with the company and I was working in pastry and he was going to law school and we got to the end of his last year of law school and I was pregnant with our second child and the economy collapsed and everything that we had been planning for and building toward and hoping for just disappeared in a matter of two weeks, honestly. And so the job offer that he had lined up got pulled, our plans of where he was going to be practicing law, where he needed to take his bar exam, everything, everything changed. So we ended up coming back to Tennessee. And my husband at the time started a practice with a friend who had also completed his law degree and passed the bar. So they were starting a young practice, which if anybody doesn't know, like if you're a young lawyer and you don't have a client list and you're not brought into a firm, it means you stand in the back of the courthouse and volunteer to take cases. I mean, it's, it's a zoo. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That's a rough way to start. And you just hope you get your name out there and it's all hustle and muscle. Wow. And of course, then I was big as a house with the second child and very near the end of that pregnancy. And so it's really hard to get hired to be employed when you're that heavy with pregnancy, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, and they know um, you're about to take maternity leave. Exactly. So it's like, why would they invest yeah. in hiring you when you're just going to end up? So, mm-hmm. and because we weren't working for anyone, then we needed to go on 10 care and state health insurance. We needed that. And then after Adelaide was born, we were still struggling financially. And at that time, then I needed to sign up for SNAP and WIC. And really in the course of time, for about 10 years, I had the kids on SNAP. We were using EBT card. I had WIC. We had another child who was a bit of a surprise and the marriage had dissolved. So now I'm a single mom. I've got three kids trying to get back into the workforce trying to figure out childcare, trying to just make sure nobody goes hungry. And, you know, at that time also trying to not let anybody know because the shame and the stigma that comes with not being able to provide for your own children was really, um, it was really an intense thing for me. That's a lot on your shoulders. You know, looking back now, I, I could have made my life a little bit easier if I had just been able to feel like I could be vulnerable about the fact that I was struggling. But we, we place so much shame and guilt on the people experiencing the need instead of the system that is broken that's perpetuating the need. So we, we tend to place more burden on the person experiencing the need than the institutions that create it. At the time when they really need it the most. Right. They really need the support. But yet it's almost a barrier to get it. Absolutely. And so it's really hard to, what I will say is all of that experience is what colors the way that I work with the staff in developing the programming and what our guidelines are for our customers and how we protect them, how we communicate with them, and also just the space itself. How do we present this? When you walk in the doors for our location, it looks like a regular corner store. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be customer facing and customer welcoming, just like any other retail opportunity. The only difference is we don't want their money. We just want them to be well. 
we just want them to have food on the table. We just want to be able to eliminate a little more of the stress and anxiety that's in that household during these times of need. And so having experienced it and knowing what it's like to go into a store and be buying groceries and have somebody behind you making comments about what it is that you're purchasing and whether or not they judge that to be appropriate because you are using a service and they see your EBT card and the fear that comes with that and the shame that comes with that and the the way that you become smaller in order to navigate through that system and try to minimize what it is that you are using and what you need and your voice gets smaller and your body gets smaller and the space that you take up becomes smaller and your ability to trust yourself starts to disappear. Almost your whole identity and self-worth is skewed and clouded because of it. Absolutely. Because then you become a, you feel like you are a burden instead of a whole person. So the transformation of that experience and then moving back into a corporate position and then moving into a leadership position like this, not only is it a gift to be able to redeem those experiences and try to make life better for somebody else so that there's not some mom laying in bed worrying about how they're going to feed their kids the next day, but also it saved me to, to be able to find my voice again and to do it in a way that, that benefits others. And you're serving now, you're able to serve in a way that you never would have if you hadn't gone through that. No, no, no. You know, I don't, I don't wish my experiences on anybody, but when you talk with somebody who is serving in a nonprofit arena, who has a personal narrative that connects to this or an experience, I think that that just brings so much more depth to the servicing. I have a mentor in the food insecurity arena who once jokingly said, listen, we're all in nonprofit work because we've got baggage and we're trying to work it out. This is therapy for us. And she's not wrong. It's true. Um, This is what does motivate us. You know, and sometimes we do it in a healthy way. Sometimes we don't do it in a healthy way. (laughs) But it's just as much for you as for the nonprofit. (laughs) Well, and why not? You know, like in terms of dream jobs, this is my dream job. And I am just really, really fortunate that I was able to connect with the right people who then had a vision for what it was that they wanted to, you know, have for leadership and to be a spokesperson for why these services are important. And they saw beyond what you saw in yourself. They saw something bigger Mm -hmm. and they pushed you Mm -hmm. to something bigger Mm -hmm. because you had originally applied for the other job. Yes. Not thinking you probably didn't even consider the director job. I literally said, are you crazy? Have you fallen on your head? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, in that whole conversation of getting your board to understand your own quirks and sense of humor, like, yeah, that was, that probably should have been an alert to them. (laughs) Oh yeah. By the way, I have a really like dark sense of humor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that's part of the package. Just buckle up, guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. You asked for it. That's so cool, though. I mean, what a way to be able to say that about your job and to be able to give back and to do something that fulfilling. Because I know it's not a walk in the park. Every day cannot be sunshine and roses in nonprofit work, even in the best of nonprofits. <laughs> That's just reality right. of right. the work. 
But yet (laughs) to be able to say that and to know that you are doing something that's going to have a long lasting impact in the community for years, like far beyond you, that's got to be so amazing to be able to do that. And what keeps you going back day after day? Yes. I mean, this is an opportunity. Like I said, I get to my experiences in a way that builds a legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to attach my name to to something that I hope is serving in this community for years to come mm-hmm. until we can solve the root problems that are causing food insecurity. I mean, I think everybody who's a nonprofit hopes to one day work themselves out of a job. That's the goal. But realistically, we need to be able to look long term and say, what is the sustainability? How do we project longevity? And the reality is unpredictable things are going to happen, like tornadoes and pandemics. Like tornadoes and pandemics and yes, and floods and fires. Yeah. So there will always be something. Yes. Even if you get stabilized and improve the situation, there's always going to be something down the road. Absolutely. And that's just life. But it sounds like you really, even with all the shifting And you mentioned in the pandemic, you had to go back to your original supporters. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you still kept your original mission at the core of everything and every decision as your compass. Yes. I mean, sure, we had to change the physicality of how we were providing services to do it in a way that was safe for everyone. But the core is how do we protect and support the dignity of others in a way that fosters hope? And so when you go back to your mission... When you have to change your programming or adjust it or make changes, you look at your root mission first, and then you kind of build from there. So is a delivery service for elderly individuals, was that our original model? No, we hadn't gotten that far yet. But to be able to say, listen, this is a dignity issue, and this is what the community is needing from us, to be able to go back and say, this is part of the mission. We didn't foresee it at the beginning of of everything, but we're grateful that we have an opportunity to fill that gap. And I'm sure there was a lot of community analysis done and maybe some pre-work before they started this as far as like, is there even a need? Is there somebody else meeting the need? Where can we fill the gaps? At what point in that whole timeline did you come in? So Brad and Kim Paisley had been volunteering at a place out in Santa Barbara called Unity Shop. And that's where they got the idea for all of this. Barbara Tolson, who is no longer with us, she passed away last year, really sat down and mentored Brad and Kim in terms of the way that their model functions and why it's different. And then just as food is regional, how you provide food is regional. And so they took that model and they adapted it for the way that life functions here in Nashville. And so that started around 2017. I came on in February of 2020. <laughs> okay. So boom, right in, ready to hit the ground. Running. We had about, yeah, about six weeks from when I had got a laptop to, um, <laughs> that's awesome. To when we opened the door. So like I said, having, having a, a little bit of a experience with rapid fire change and being able to adjust on a dime. In at the large corporate level. Yes, yes, absolutely. And being able to communicate that to a team of people and say, okay, this is the direction that we're heading in. And I need you to trust me in this position and I will not steer you wrong. We're going to get through this, but we're going to get through it together. So it just takes a lot of communication. And uh, I was really fortunate that the board that we had and the founders that we have and the staff that we have all pulled together and recognized that 
we may have to answer questions on the fly and figure things out in the moment. But ultimately, the goal is to address the situation that we're in in the safest way possible that benefits the community most. And, you know, we've talked a lot about mentoring on the show in past episodes and how pivotal that can be in our journeys. And so I just want to point out, like, even with them starting this, Mm -hmm. they needed a mentor because I doubt if they had just gone around starting nonprofits, it's a lot of work. And to do this kind of model really took some learning and mentoring. And then you said yourself in this new role, you've needed a lot of mentors. Yes. Yes. And to go back to your previous question about addressing the need and everything, our original goal based off of the information that we had, the the research that had been done in the community, like we are intentionally in an area that is a food desert. And the idea was to address the need in that particular neighborhood, along with other families that were coming to us through referral families. The goal, (laughs) looking back at it now, is kind of funny, but the goal was to have a hundred families shop with us twice a month and be able to provide for those 100 families and kind of case study them and help them through a year. And right now our services are capped at 350 families until the end of the calendar year so that we can then go back and say, okay, is the model working? How many people can we actually bring into this space and do it safely and and provide for them appropriately and consistently? So there is an awareness of hunger in the community but that was pre-pandemic. It was, you know, pre-everything it feels like. And so I think that it has opened the eyes of not only our founders and our supporters, but also just this demand that nonprofits are experiencing. It kind of opened the doors with the foundations and the, and the funders as well. And the sense that like, this is a major problem. This is a long-term problem. This is not a fast solution problem. And I think that's important to acknowledge that you can't just slap a quick Band-Aid on it and it'll be fixed. Yes. I mean, in terms of the amount of people that we were feeding during the pandemic, that was an 18-month program that we did. But really, we recognized that that was really just a bandage to stop the bleeding. And you had to. You have to. Yes. You can't heal somebody's open wound, not to be gross, Mm -hmm. until you stop the bleeding. What we know from the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 was that it takes the average family 10 years to build back their financial resources and get back to a place of stability. That's a long time. I went through that time. It was 10 years for me. And so, you know, I can, I can say with certainty, it takes a long time to, to get back to feeling safe and stable and having those resources and building back your savings and having the resources that you need to get your family through. The way that this pandemic has gone and the length of time and the way that it has affected individuals who never thought that they were going to be out of a job, that their industry was going to suffer. We look at the entertainment industry and the tourism industry here in Nashville. Those are jobs that people did not think that they were ever going to lose or that there would be a a shortage in. And so they ended up using up all of their resources trying to survive something that didn't have a clear end a clear light at the end of the tunnel. So convincing those individuals to come and utilize services instead of training all of their own personal resources was definitely a challenge. Communicating to people that they could, in fact, that this is what we're here for. And we exist for that reason. And all are welcome, that kind of mindset, and to kind of help people address the stigmas that they themselves have about food insecurity or financial insecurity or housing insecurity or healthcare insecurity. That has been the biggest challenge. Yeah, I'm sure 
that's been a hurdle just getting past that. You were describing it's typical, traditional attitudes mm-hmm. and being in line at the grocery store. I mean, you're already down. You don't need to be <laughs> beaten down anymore. But yet, unfortunately, that happens, whether it's our perception or the way people treat others. It's so unfortunate. I think that there is a fear rooted in all of us that that could be us. And so we tend to other the other because otherwise we have to address the fear that we have in our hearts of what it is that makes us a good person or makes us successful or makes us feel safe and secure. And so that is a very lizard brain reaction to make a judgment call on somebody else's circumstances. And what we've seen in this last few years is that it could be anybody at any given time. You know, you don't know if your street's going to get bombed or your neighborhood is going to flood or these things can happen so rapidly and they're not moral judgments, they're circumstances. And people are just trying to address how to get through. And what we want people to know is when they walk in our doors, there's not going to be any judgment for why it is that they're in a circumstance. What we want to do is help them find a way to move forward in whatever way works best for them. That's one of the reasons why if somebody is looking at you know our website or any of our social media, that sort of thing, you're never going to see a picture of a customer because the goal is to provide them as much safety and security and anonymity here within our doors. This is a safe place for them. And we do not engage in that sort of, you know, if, if a customer wants to volunteer a story as a way of saying, hey, thanks, you helped me through a difficult circumstance, that's great. But that's purely based off of them volunteering that information. We're never going to request that from them. You're not going to exploit that even more of what they're going through. Uh, I think somebody once referred to it as um, poverty porn for people to want to see. And I'm not making a judgment. I mean, I know it's hard for people who are donors and supporters to understand the impact they're making without hearing the stories of the people who are benefiting from the programming. But we really have to be careful about the way that we exploit somebody's circumstances and ask them to be grateful for programming that keeps them alive when they are already at their lowest point. It's like, these are the things that we should be doing for each other anyway, because we're human beings, keeping each other alive, being good neighbors, putting out that house fire. Those should be automatic things that we do. If we only do them because we need to hear thank you at the end, or you saved me, then that's, that's not a good enough reason using it to get more money. Yeah, that falls into a dignity issue as well. If I have to exploit somebody else's terrible circumstance in order to raise money, I don't feel like that's a good approach. I think we need to change that narrative much in the same way that we need to approach and change the way that people access food. I think it all goes together. I expect that would also bring a creative challenge for you (laughs) and your team, trying to really convey... Yes. This deep need and this compelling work you're doing without being able to tell the stories, because that's another piece we've talked about on Mm -hmm. the podcast is the storytelling and how that can really convey what you're doing to donors. But yet, I mean, the reality is there are some stories that just are not ours to tell. Right. I've really admired your social media of how you're reaching out and like appreciating donors and showing Mm -hmm. so much appreciation for Mm -hmm. their generosity 
and the variety of partners that are involved, but yet how are you handling these challenges with this? Sometimes it is as simple as me explaining my story. So I am more than happy. That's why I say I'm an open book. I would so much rather put myself on the spot and the residuals of, of shame and embarrassment for a circumstance, but I've made my way through that experience. And so sometimes it's sharing what my story is in substitution for a customer that we currently have you now, because if, if there had been a service like this, maybe I would have been able to make my way through faster or with far fewer panic attacks. God knows. Sometimes it's putting our volunteers who are, are interested in sharing why it is that they are involved in the programming and why they want to volunteer with us. There are so many moving parts to our work that my go-to should never be to put the burden of proof and, and the burden of why we exist on the customer who is experiencing the greatest amount of need. When we say it's a free grocery store, I mean free. They don't even need to pay in gratitude. No strings attached. No strings attached. And so like we really have to, we do, we have to get creative about that sort of thing. But that's kind of part of the revolution in servicing that we are trying to create. It's not just how you access your food or that we are trying to give you additional resources and, and wrap around and support to address all of the areas that are encircling your need. We also need to address the way that we then build support and raise those dollars. And honestly, you know, one of the great things about that is having two founders who have an incredible sense of humor. So when things get really dark, I can always turn to Brad and Kim and they are going to find a way to creatively address coming to a community and saying, listen, we need your help, but they're going to do it with humor and they're going to do it with grace. One of the things that we have not been able to implement yet, but we keep hoping is that we have this fundraising idea that we want to do and it's a dodgeball tournament. Oh, fun. So it's like, you know, let's, let's maybe take the heavy, heavy off. And I think at this point, everyone's aware of the fact that there are hungry children and we need to find a way to provide for them. But let's maybe find a way to do it where we can laugh and come together and have a good time and not drowned in the heaviness of the issue that we're trying to assault. They always find like these really great ways to kind of bring it back to let's find a way, let's do it in a way. That's fun. And you know, if it's for kids, why not make it playful? Right. Why not make it right. fun? Let people act like kids again. Well, and you know? again, it goes back to that whole thing of removing stigmas. If we can talk about hunger and poverty and need and do it in a way where people don't feel weighted down by the, the guilt or whatever it is that the, you know, the heaviness of the topic, we need to be able to t- address these, these topics as much as anything we're problem solving, let's problem solve together. And, you know, let's do it in a way where you feel good about the experience that you had in addressing that circumstance with us. Right. That's going to continue building trust in your community with your donors to where maybe they know you're going to be good stewards, right. even if they can't see some of those frontline activities, right. the way you were saying, right. they still know you're going to use the money wisely to make the most impact possible. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still my job to do as much data collection as possible, but that doesn't mean that I need to put somebody's face in front of a camera with a microphone. Exactly. So there is, you know, maybe I get a little bit more focused on collecting as much data as possible. 
in a collective way that doesn't single anyone. Right, exactly. But also you can point towards some progression in individual stories without having to name them. So that, you know, because I'm all for being open and transparent to any of our donors and supporters. They absolutely deserve to know where their money goes. That doesn't mean that they have full access to a person's privacy. There's a balance there. Yes. And I think it's a huge asset that you are so willing to share your story. And I mean, you've shared it. So it's out there. It's not like you're keeping it a secret now. Now you can share freely of what it was like firsthand. Mm -hmm. But also on the other side, I feel like that's got to be encouraging to see that, okay, you made it through. (laughs) You survived. Yeah, it was hard, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you made it through. Maybe I can get there too. Like that's got to be helpful for your customers that come in. You know, I'm hopeful that it does point to that fact um, and that they understand that my heart is empathetic to where it is that they are. It's also really important for me to be able to point out like, listen, yeah, I made it through and it was really, really hard, but also Some of our customers have additional barriers that they are forced to overcome because of the way that society exists in the culture. So I made it through, but I'm a fairly well-educated white woman with no accent who comes from a Judeo-Christian background. So again, I have to be very honest about my privilege and my opportunities that were presented to me that may not be presented to somebody who is equally willing and equally deserving and equally capable and motivated and industrious. So, you know, I have to look at both sides of my experience and say, okay, so I had these additional leg up opportunities where somebody was more willing to trust me, believe in me, support me, give me those opportunities. And yes, I took them and yes, it was hard, but it's not as hard as what somebody over here is facing. Um, And so how do I address that additional support network and be aware of it and then pull in those resources for our customers? It's not apples to apples with anybody, with any two people. No, no. Our journeys, our paths, our backgrounds, it's completely different. Yeah. When we look at our model and when we came into this, we were like, okay, you know, a year of servicing and that should give them the jumping off point to be successful. Now we're two years into it and we're looking at it and we're like, hey, you know what we never talked about? What defines success? What is the definition of success? And is that an across the board thing for each family? Oh, guess what? No, no, it's not. So we really have to have that additional level of sitting down with our customers and saying, what defines success for you? What would make you feel ready or capable or supported or moving in the right direction? And that's going to be just as individual as the, as the choices for the food that they come and pick out. That's true. That's a more holistic view of who our customers are and what it is that they really need from us. Yeah. And depending on their starting point and their circumstances, Mm -hmm. do they have transportation? Do they have stable housing? Yeah, exactly. Is this a temporary job loss that you're experiencing? Have you been out of work for more than six months? Do you have any kind of resources? Family? Do you have family in the area? Do you have a community? Do you have church? Yeah. Yeah. So we really have learned that we need to go back and really redefine or address the fact that we were taking certain things into, you know, we were taking them for granted as baselines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a challenge that I've talked to other nonprofits about is just how to measure some of the ambiguous data Mm -hmm. and how to pull Mm -hmm. some of that in to be more defined so that you can measure start to finish 
what did this look like going through the program? And that's, that's a tough one. And that's a whole nother conversation, but it's still (laughs) a very, that's an issue that I'm sure you have to try and address of, we have to somehow quantify some of these moving parts. Right. But also hold sacred the value of the individual and how their individual circumstance is its own thing. And it cannot be a cookie cutter mold where everybody comes in and they do the programming and they're going to get the same results and it's going to be happily ever after. Yeah. You follow these one, two, three steps right. and here you go. Here's the solution. Cause really, if it was Thanks that, for yeah, if it was that easy, I really could work myself out of a job. Like, right. Wouldn't that be great in a perfect world? No. Well, I feel like we could chat all day, but I know you have a lot to do. So as we wrap up, what is one specific resource that has been helpful to you along your journey? Um, well, okay. So there, can I name two? We're not too strict around. Okay, good. (laughs) Plus I have a hard time following (laughs) rules. Two, two resources that I have had, um, that have been really, really helpful is the center for nonprofit management here in the middle Tennessee area um, and the resources that they have, the classes, the networking opportunities, the ability to post jobs someplace, the bulletin boards, all of it, all of it. If you are working in any part of nonprofit and you're in this area and you haven't signed up for that, sign up for that. It's worth its weight in gold. And the other thing is, as I mentioned before, the leadership that has been provided to me through um, a woman named Joe Saxton, who specifically addresses and tries to mentor women in leadership who are either in ministry or nonprofit, because those cultures are are very similar and have far-reaching impact in different communities. And so her heart is for helping women learn to trust themselves and be the best leaders that they possibly can, but also supporting other women in leadership. So I would say those two resources have been just instrumental in helping me find my way through and and be able to lead confidently. That's amazing. What you've done here is impressive. And I look forward to continuing to watch the journey and how all this unfolds over the next few years, because so far it's been really cool and really exciting to see it. So where can people connect with you online if they want to follow along and see what you're doing? People who specifically want to find out what's going on the store, I would say go to thestore.org. And you can check out all of the different social media that's been going on. And uh, we've been in the press lately, which has been very nice. And also you can sign up for our newsletter. I send those out quarterly that kind of just fill in the cracks and the details of what it is that we've been doing. And then also, if you're interested in volunteerism or donating, that's our main resource. And then I am just kind of out there floating on social media. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on, on Facebook. Well, mainly you can find me on Instagram because I'm taking pictures of my kids and my garden all of the time. I've got a small addiction to tomato plants, but that's at CLM Freiglick. That's a good outlet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you know, you got to go out and burn off some of the, the worry. Uh, basically, if, if you go to the store, you're going to find all of the links to all of our resources and our, our social media outlets. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we will definitely keep an eye on that. Thank you so much for sharing your time and all these great wisdom and resources of how you've done this. Well done. Teresa, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. All right, friends, what do you think? Such good stuff, right? I made a whole list of takeaways from this one. And a lot of it really reinforces some of the things we've been talking about on the podcast already. 
I will link to our mentoring series and our storytelling series for nonprofits, so you can go back and catch those again if you haven't yet. I would love to hear from you. What were your biggest takeaways? Hit me up on LinkedIn, come connect over there and send me a message to let me know what was your favorite takeaway from this episode. All right, my friends, I hope you have a wonderful week and a very Merry Christmas. I'll talk to you soon.